Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Drew Marshall Show. That's my name. The other voice you were hearing there was Tim, the Homer Simpson tool. And uh, just the bashing, it's Mr. Just the Tim bashing. Mr. Tal Backman is the other voice you're hearing, and now the sweet mellifluous tones of Mr. Bruxy Cavey, who, when he was a child, wanted to be on radio. True story. Yes, actually, it's true. Big Bad Bob Bilma was my radio name at the time. <laughs> what? Yes, <laughs> in the WBBB Radio FM 65. I'm Big Bad Bob Bilma. Wow. <laughs> yeah, what, I had, what station were you on? I wasn't in my head. Well, that's actually pretty good. That was like a a Venus flytrap (laughs) almost (laughs) kind of 1979. We got uh, Barry White coming up after this. That's weird, man. Um, You know, the first question that Tal asked me was, what the heck is, what is Bruxy? Is it B-R-U-X-Y? You spelled it correct. Okay. But why? Why? It's a mispronunciation of Bruce. Oh, okay. My parents named me Bruce, and when I was learning to read, I learned about phonics. I was hooked on phonics, <laughs> and B-R-U-C-E, spelled Bruck e but Then I learned that the K can also sound like a S, so it's a two for the price of one consonant. So I had Bruck-S-E, and that's the phonetically legalistic pronunciation of Bruce, Bruxy. Do you drop the L word a lot, legalistic? <laughs> I would imagine you would. Show Tal your tattoo and explain to him your tattoo, please. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Bruxy Cavey is now holding out his left arm, and on it it says... Leviticus 19.28. And being an ex-Mormon, Tal, what does Boy, that I, verse off mean? Off the top of my head, I don't know what that is. <laughs> Which one is uh, that? That is the Bible verse that says, Thou shalt not get a tattoo. Oh. I wanted to get a tattoo that would point straight to the message of Jesus. And I thought, what Bible verse points to what Jesus accomplished more than any other Bible verse in a tattoo? So I thought Leviticus 19.28, which says do not get a tattoo, would be perfect to get tattooed. Do you think Jesus would approve of that? Yeah. yeah I think that was his really? message. What yeah. would you do? Freedom from the law, new covenant, the old is gone, the new has come. He, and yet he said he, he didn't come to violate the law, though, right? No, you're putting a period where there's a comma. He said, I haven't... <laughs> what? What? He said, I haven't come to abolish the law, but, is the next word, the I have come to fulfill it. And you say, well, what the heck does that mean? How do you fulfill the yeah, law? So you got to keep listening. you got to keep it. watching. Yeah, and then, no, no, you watch him, and he goes into this series of what are called the six antitheses. Six times he gets this antithetical pattern going, and it follows this pattern. He says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, but I tell you, in that same chapter. Six times he repudiates the Old Testament law, says, you You've heard it says this, but I'm telling you this. You've heard it says this, but I'm telling you that. So he actually establishes this whole new way of living. It's it's fundamentally irreligious. Nothing's ever happened like this in the history of religion, where the, the one who assumes the authority position of a religion says, now that I'm here, I'm going to shut down the religion. This never happened before. It makes him the most sociologically interesting person in history. Why, why do you think that Jesus never mentions the dietary thing or the Sabbath day change? He does actually in Mark 7, and he cancels it, which is fascinating. He teaches that it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean. It's what comes out of a person, what we carry around inside us. Oh, not poo-poo? Yeah. Ah. No. But he, never, he, says, uh, but he never says we, we can't, you know, we can eat shellfish now. Well, I mean, well, it well he does. What we he says is he makes the statement, it's not what you eat that makes you clean or unclean. It's what you carry around inside you. And then Mark, in the next verse, who's writing the gospel, in case you didn't catch it, I mean, you could just deduce it from what Jesus says, but in case you didn't catch it, Mark 7, Mark says, and thereby Jesus declared all foods clean. And it's like, wow, 
This is powerful. That's well, embedded right that in the earliest not, gospel. Yeah, I mean, if you were kind of a skeptic, though, wouldn't you say, well, you know, Mark kind of threw that in there to kind of, you know, re- retrospectively after the, you know, the apostles following Jesus' death changed everything. Yeah, it would be kind of— there's, the, no, there's no record in, in, the, in the gospels of Jesus actually breaking Jewish dietary well, if you don't, law. if you don't trust Mark who's mm-hmm. writing it— then why why wait for Jesus to say something? Because then you would just say, yeah, but Mark wrote those words about Jesus, so why should I trust Mark? If you're if you're saying I want to trust the actual words of Jesus, you have to trust the authors who are recording history. It's how history works. You you record the people who are closest to the events, and Mark is the very first gospel written. It, there's no historical reason not to trust it. And Jesus says, what goes into you doesn't make you unclean. That's that's in the red letters. That's his words. That would be enough. And then Mark adds the commentary that's his, saying, therefore, Jesus declared all foods clean. That's that's huge. Do, Bruxy, do you know much about Tal's story? I do not. So Tal um, is a musician, mm-hmm. plays the accordion really, really well. Beautiful. And the triangle through a distortion pedal. I, I love a good polka. Wah-wah yeah. pedal. Yeah, yeah. Wah-wah pedal on the triangle. No, he um, he is uh, an ex-Mormon. I first mm-hmm. found out about Tal through Bill Maher's Religious movie. Oh, nice. And they interviewed Tal about uh, why he bailed on Mormonism. Oh, maybe that's where I'd know you, sitting in the windowsill. Ah! Uh, yeah. Are you kidding me? Wow. Right? Yeah. Turns out, it turns out it was we an iconic for... shot. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. I just said that earlier in the show. Really? Did you? Were you like, listening? No, I haven't, I haven't yeah. tuned in. So that's... <laughs> it's right up there. I'm sorry. Sorry, Can are we, we on the air right now? I thought we were just having a chat. You weren't tuning into the show on your way to the show. Wow. <laughs> Did you really just come up with that? Yeah, because no, I watched that movie. Uh, incredible! How many times? I, we showed clips. So that, this is this is on the list with like when Fredo gets nailed at the turnpike and what? Like, what, you know, like Godfather, iconic mm. movie scenes. Right, this is right <laughs> up iconic there. Iconic celluloid you in the window history. Sill. Leave yeah. the gun, take the cannoli. Absolutely <laughs> legendary. <laughs> Well, yeah, most of our church have seen you then because we've, we've shown this movie. I've, enc- I've shown clips in our Sunday service. So I've encouraged people to watch it. There's some good commentary there. So as an ex-Mormon, one of the reasons he became an ex-Mormon, he shared earlier, was because he started researching stuff in order to teach a proper, good adult Sunday school and mm-hmm. realized that there were some things that were not lining up. Yeah, good. Right? Yes. Have you ever come close to researching Jesus stuff and gone, whoa, Things aren't lining up, oh, ever. Yes, and that's how I got to where I am. But what I found was that the Jesus stuff that he taught that's recorded in the Gospels was not lining up with what the institutional church was representing him to teach. It was kind of like Jesus versus the institution. That became clearer and clearer in my head. So that was my what? journey. Was Like what? Uh, well, his stance against uh, religious systems, um, his... His undo, his claiming authority in relationship over any rules or regulations. So we talked about Mark seven. He does the same thing in Matthew nine about divorce and remarriage. Um, sacrificial system that he claims to be the last sacrifice to shut the whole system down. I mean, in a in a time where almost every religion it was ubiquitous to have animal sacrifices to get right with God or the gods. This idea that the the leader of ascendancy in a religion becomes well, he he absorbs the whole religious system. He becomes the last sacrifice. He becomes the priest who offers the sacrifice. He says his body is the temple where the sacrifice will be offered. The entire religious system gets absorbed in him, and he says, therefore, you don't need your religion anymore. I mean, that message gets him killed, and in getting killed, it actually fulfills the message. It's um, the most brilliant thing. Did I've you hear what he just across. said? I thought that was impressive. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, would you? Yeah, Would you would so you? Give the impression of believing that the Bible is indeed inerrant and infallible. Would you say that? Yeah, well, I believe in the inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God, and His name is Jesus. 
Well, not the words. Seemed not like the an book. evasion. No, yeah, yeah. yeah but he's wasting. Well, here's what here's what I'm saying is if even if you just approach the Bible as basic first century history, there's enough there to blow your mind on the message. So, and even if we say, well, I don't think Jesus taught any of that. Somebody else taught it. I'd say, okay, well, that's who I'm talking about. Whoever the guy is who came up with this. I don't know why you'd call him something else other than Jesus, because that was a very common first century name. But let's say somebody else came up with this teaching. I say that person has invented the most profound thing that's ever happened in the history of world religion, and that person I, I want to follow, be dedicated to, and learn from. Even if his name is Steve. You guys, yeah, I called the well, what about Bob theory. It's just Josh. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. It's just Joshua. Joshua. It it's is. a very yeah. common yeah. first Joshua, century yeah. name. Joshua yeah. Josephson. So the <laughs> idea that there's a first century Jewish man whose name is like, likely Jesus or Joshua, who who taught these things actually there has to, that person has to exist because the ideas exist by the end of the first century and well, they are mind blowing if, if you don't mind me going on a little bit later. no I told you I was going to go to the bathroom I'm out see you guys <laughs> well I'm kind of curious about this because um, it's quite common to have uh, believing Christians you know uh, talk about how the Bible is this accurate uh, you, know, uh, you know testimony and etc um, etc et and yet and yet over and over and over again you see these guys essentially inventing their own religion, they un they unmoor themselves from what it actually says in the Bible. So th- this is why I ask. Now, are you who just are, talking? Sorry, who oh, are these guys? Uh, these are, are Christians. But are, hold on, are you just talking Christians who say one thing and live another? Are you just talking about hypocrisy? I'm, I'm talking. Well, I'm talking. There's there's a kind of an odd thing where it's almost like you know, like when you meet a bipolar person, like the bipolarity is. It, like it's, it's serial. Like they're one. They say one thing in one minute, and then ten minutes later they're saying something else, or ten seconds later. But I, I keep meeting Christians that seem to be bipolar simultaneously. Uh-huh. You know, they're believing two completely different things at the exact same time. Example, like example. example, the Bible is the word of God. It is inerrant and infallible. And our lady pastor gave a great sermon last week. So my response is Saint Paul, First Corinthians, Corinthians fourteen. Very clear. He says it's a commandment of the Lord. He, th- there's nothing that indicates he is specifically address- addressing the Corinthians when he says, let your women keep silence in the church. Now, I don't really Amen. care what happens. <laughs> I don't really care what happens because I'm no longer a believing Christian. But I, it's, it's pretty rich for a guy to tell me that I should believe in the Bible, and then 10 seconds later I find out that his church is, you would have to say, okay. in a state of apostasy if we go by the text. Give us another example. Just uh, well, I, I want you to, yeah, hold on. Okay. I, want, I want him to come up with two, okay. and then we'll throw it to you. All right. This is Drew. Go. Um, um, homosexuality, homosexual activity, no problem. No, I mean, that's so another, another one. In other words, I, I believe the Bible. The Bible's well, infallible. You know, the Old Testament, um, but, but obviously— if, But if you're gay, it's okay. Yeah, the New Testament condemns homosexuality. So does the Old Testament. It's the inconceivable that a that that, that Saint Paul or any of these guys would be okay with gay marriage, and yet you have people. Now, of course, we're talking about maybe li- more liberal Christian churches, but you know, there's so. In other words, at, at the very same in in the same moment, they are sort of you know the entire reason for their existence. The only authority they can claim derives from this text, the Bible, and yet they've taken it to some other place, and they don't have any rationale for. Why they should be, you know, why, why they have retained credit. That pushback was brought to you by Tal Backman. Mm-hmm. 
Response, Brexit Cavey. Before I respond to the two specific things, just to point out the pattern here, it seems as though you're saying that because Christians don't follow the Bible, therefore I'm, I've lost my faith. Now, maybe there's another better reason. No, no, that's not why he's that's not his faith. Then why, why are these the examples that you're raising to talk about? I thought... No, this, what, I think what he's saying, if I could put words in Tal's mouth, is what he's saying is I, I c- continuously meet Christians yeah. who hold up the Bible as uh, literal and infallible, mm-hmm. and yet I'm smart enough to look at the Bible and go, okay, you believe that, yeah. but yet you sign off on this and you yeah. sign off on that. So well, if you sign off on these things... Then you cannot say that the Bible is what you think it is. Okay, yeah, that's an interesting discussion. I thought we were talking about your faith, though. What? No, 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 no. Okay, all right. Yeah. No, I, I, look, just to clarify really yeah. quick, and then I, I want you yeah. to respond. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's two issues: is is did this stuff actually happen in the real world, in the re- in real life? And the, I would say, you know, so an empirical question. The other thing is a logical question: is the story, in fact, internally consistent? Is what these guys are telling me? full of contradictions or is it not? And so, mm-hmm. so for example, if you, even if I could give a pass on the empirical real world stuff, well, like, you know, maybe Jesus didn't really walk on water, but I'd still like to go to this church because I like the music, I like the messages. What would tr- drive me completely insane is that kind of, uh, you know, uh, double think, uh, mutually exclusive propositions. We believe in the Bible and I'm ordaining, uh, I'm marrying a gay couple and there's a woman pastor in our church and the Bible prohibits that. The okay. New Testament prohibits right, that. Right. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, Bruxy Cavey. Great. Uh, it seems to me that you're, you're you're entering into the conversation that believers have about exegesis and application. How do we apply? For instance, in First Corinthians fourteen, Paul says a woman should never speak in the church. But just a few. Uh, chapters earlier, he has said that when women pray and prophesy in the church, when they speak in church in that manner, they should have their head covering, head covered to not be a distraction. So you, so within the first, within the same book, within a few chapters, you have him already acknowledging that his prohibition for women to speak in the church is not absolute. It's given a context. In fact, he gives them procedures for how they're to pray and prophesy in the church. So part of reading a 2,000-year-old document is to say, what is the historical context that would lead to that? Why does he say in one chapter, never speak, and another one, he say, here's how you should speak. And so we look at, uh, at historical contexts, at cultural contexts. That's what I think anyone does with any faith or any historical document, to say, what does Josephus mean when he, when he says this? What did Plato mean when he wrote that? That's just normal exegesis of an ancient text. I don't think it's, so it puts does, this in any different category than any other text. So let's just deal with that specific one. Um, should women shut up in church? Women in the first century were illiterate. They were not allowed to read, the, especially within religious circles, they were not allowed to read sacred texts. Some, so, so especially the more religious a culture got, the less literate the people were, especially within a Jewish culture. So boys were trained in Torah from an early age. It was, they, were learnt, they, taught how to, they were taught how to read, and they were taught specifically how to read and memorize Torah. Uh, women were literate. So a new, cult, a, new, a new movement that taught men and women are equal also had to put up a caution flag. You're equal, but we can't now, just because you're equal, say that women can teach the text because they can't even read. But women can prophesy, which was a kind of teaching that just was more intuitive. What is God saying to me? Which he says, you can do that, but you can't be teachers. He, we know that that's what his emphasis is because in First Timothy 2, that, that's where he lands the plane there. He's a specifically teaching when you haven't had direct 
knowledge of Torah, you can't even read, how can you be teachers? He says, I want you to start asking your husbands at home, start learning, but you can't teach. When you look at the historical background, it actually starts to come to the surface, I think makes sense. In the studio with Bruxy Cavey, he's the teaching pastor at the Meeting House. He's also the author of The End of Religion, one of my all-time favorite books, and his latest book, which we'll be talking about momentarily, Reunion. Is it possible that over the centuries the church has altered the message of Christ? Is your breath bad? Mm. Is it? I, I don't know. Are you subconscious? Why did you put gum in your mouth right now? I wanted the... to drink a water, and there isn't any water here in the studio. You don't treat your I'll guests very well. Tim's <laughs> falling down so, on the job, Tim. and Drew's about to kiss you. Water yeah, guess. Water so boy. Water boy. I, I got gum now. That's fine. Oh, My no, saliva will do the trick. We're going to get you water. Uh, has modern Christianity wrapped itself so tightly in fragmented, inactive version of the gospel that the life-changing message of God has been smothered? Bruxy Cavey thinks the answer is we. He speaks to a new generation interested in Jesus, but embarrassed by Christians in his latest book, Reunion, the good news of Jesus for seekers, saints, and Drew. Oh, sinners, sorry. The message of Jesus changed the world until the world changed the message. Hmm. So much more to talk about, about this book, Reunion, in just a second. Right now, it's time to get into some gay stuff. Um, your problem with Christians who, who say that gay is okay is what? Well, tell, I'm, tell just, I'm just kind of curious as a as an excuse I, me? I would say it, it, it <laughs> <laughs> curious about that because oh. as an impartial observer of you know Christendom, um, there the, Watch your there, elbow, there again seems to be uh, not that I'm objecting to this, uh, um, you know, an acceptance of, of homosexuality, homosexual activity. Uh, an acknowledgement, a recognition. Right, not that there's anything wrong with that. Well, they're performing gay marriages, and yet you have Paul railing against you know homosexuality, so I don't get it. Okay. And there's no explanation. These guys never give an explanation. Now, I have to give you credit. You've done really well so far. So I want to <laughs> wow. hear what, I wanna hear what <laughs> wow. the... Yeah. I've never seen Tal pat someone on the head yeah. before. That I, I mean, I want to hear what is the explanation <laughs> for that. Great. The current debate right now within Christian circles, and I'm just thinking of those Christians who really care about what the Bible teaches, is where does the Bible point us toward on the direction of same-sex marriage? Because that's something the Bible never addresses. It's not going to exist for another 2,000 years after the New Testament is written. So the concept is just not there. Sex outside of marriage on all levels wrong. is wrong. Evil, yeah. Yeah. And that's gay or straight, mm-hmm. yeah, right? What, and then marriage is seen as the only context for sex. Right. And there's no such thing as same-sex marriage. So it's just never touched on. It's just never addressed. It's not dealt as a hypothetical. So currently you have, I think, good and godly Christians, Christians who really care, on both sides of the fence wrestling it through saying, I think that a, a person who is gay is called to singleness and celibacy, uh, according to Matthew 19. And you have other Christians saying, well, I think we could follow the trajectory of Scripture and say that God is willing to provide accommodations uh, for such a time as this, and here it is, gay, a gay a marriage is a reality. I think we can follow the trajectory, trajectory of Scripture and say, I think God would allow that to be the case. And that's an internal debate of people who follow Jesus. We're, that's, we, don't, we don't wake up in the morning and think about gay sex. We wake up in the morning and think about Jesus. Now well, we follow him. You've got to speak for we... yourself on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Drew and I and Tim are kind of a whole yeah. Yeah. farther along on the journey. Yeah. But that's, so that's, that's an internal debate, and people are welcome to come and have an opinion. But that, that doesn't define what it means to follow Jesus. And both of those camps are people who actually care about what the Bible says and are trying to figure you out think? what the truest thing is what, to follow What about it. the Levitical prohibition on 
But we're in the New Covenant. You understand that's what this tattoo is all about. I do understand. Leviticus 19, the same chapter that says don't get a tattoo, also says you can't wear clothing woven of two different kinds of material. And if you're a man, you can't shave your beard or trim your hair. And yet here we are, are, those of us who claim to follow Jesus are still doing stuff like that. Can't eat shellfish? I do. Because Jesus repudiated the Old Covenant. That's why it's called the New Covenant. The New Covenant replaces the Old Covenant. Hebrews 8.13 says, by calling the New Covenant new, God made the Old Covenant obsolete. You can't get a more bold statement than that. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, nice, nice job. <laughs> but my, I mean, my only thing is, is like, sure, you're sort of follow the, tra- the trajectory. But I mean, uh, how do you just kind of ignore all the stuff that Paul says about homosexuality? He doesn't say anything about orientation. Just to be clear, we should always be clear on that. The behavior. New Testament, it's always behavior. Yeah. Gay people, straight people. There's never we're all, we're all loved by God and called to follow Christ. It is simply behavior. It's behavior. Any right. sex outside of marriage is equally seen as outside of the covenant God's designed it for. And then it all, usually goes on to say adultery is wrong, fornication is wrong, and it will say a man lying with a man, woman but, with a woman is also wrong. Just in case someone says, well, that doesn't apply to us if you're gay. But you do have to acknowledge though that he he takes specific aim at homosexual homosexual behavior Paul Paul does yeah in in first in uh, in Romans chapter one in the first chapter of Romans is the one time where there's an extended passage on homosexual behavior and he says this those people who are walking away from God and uh, turning away from his rule of life and worshiping idols he says you even see that expressed in the extreme of men sleeping with men and women sleeping with women that this is an example of people walking away these are not people who care about what God teaches but how do I want to live? And yet it's a beautiful setup because he says, you have that extreme, and he gets the religious readers all riled up. Look at how terrible people are behaving. And then he stops and says, and you do the same thing when you gossip, when you're disobedient to your parents, when you're – I think it is a beautiful tactical device of oratory to get people uh, focused up. on a sin and yeah. then realize, hey, wait, we're all in the same boat together. It doesn't discount what he's taught, but you look at the purpose of why it's taught. I think it's a very fair and reasonable and actually quite brilliant approach to, to confront religious people with their judgmentalism. So was Paul saying uh, no to being gay? Was Paul saying that straight up? Nobody's saying no or yes to being gay or straight. Nobody. To get being gay or as an orientation. When you talk about being gay or being straight. Okay, but, right? yeah, but hold on. You're delineating you're talking about between, behavior. You're, you're, so what I hear you saying is um, it's okay if you're gay. Just don't do it. Well, okay. first of all, Jesus encouraged singleness more than any the church has ever given him credit for, for gay or for straight. Right. Matthew 19. If you can lock it up, you can serve God more. If, That's what I've heard. Paul says that, too. Yeah, yeah, both yeah. Jesus and Paul. I mean, yeah. Jesus changed the world, and he never got married. But, you, you know, as, as a bunch of uh, people who, I don't know if you guys are married, I'm married, you're married, we can... We can sit back and say, well, everyone should have that. We have to realize, as someone who's on the front lines of pastoral ministry, you have to realize the damage that has been done to countless generations of people who, for one reason or another, are never going to get married. It could be a personality default, a physical default, or they're just ugly, or they just don't, they're socially awkward, or they're not. There are a lot of lonely people who, for one reason or another, are never going to have a date, never going to get married. Yeah. And the, the Disney dream that the church has also bought into, that marriage is the final, beautiful actualization oh. of your humanity— casts such a deep, dark shadow on the lives of so many people who are just waiting. And the only hope that we give them in our cliches is, don't worry, one day he'll come along, and then another 10 years goes by, and another 10 years. And to say, to say that, wait a second, at the center of our faith is a guy who never got married and he changed the world, and he gathered around him a real sense of family, like real sense of spiritual family. I can do that. I can throw myself into this and not just spend my younger years looking for a partner to complete me. It's this beautiful, freeing message. I don't think that we should look down on that and say that's a kind of freeing message that, uh, that, that's whose time has come and is really beautiful. Does your church have any gay leaders? 
Yes. Does your church? I know. Okay, let me re-ask that question. Does <laughs> your church have any married gay leaders? Yes, married in a heterosexual. Does marriage. your church have any gay <laughs> married gay leaders? No, no. Would that be allowed? No, because because leadership is that level within a church where you say I am now standing in line with the theology of this church to represent what this church believes to other people, and so we would also not have any police officers or military personnel volunteering in a leadership position at our church because we're pacifists really? and yeah. And we would not have, uh, for instance, if you said, I believe in infant baptism, we'd say, well, you can be a part of this church. You can be here and disagree with us and be a part of our community, Mm -hmm. but we're not going to put anyone in a position of leadership if leadership means I represent what this church believes. That would just call you into a position of necessary hypocrisy. That would be inappropriate. Can I ask a quick question on the Mm -hmm. pacifism thing? Jesus at the temple sits down, fashions methodically a scourge, Mm -hmm. beats the hell out of these people. Yeah. Smashes their tables. Yeah, sorry. So I have to correct you there. No, he doesn't. He drives out the animals. He never whips a person. John 1 is – sorry, John chapter 2 is the only place – So the scourge was for the animals? That's just what the text says. You're looking at me surprised, but I'm just going with the text. John 2 is the only place (laughs) mentions the whip, and he makes the whip and says he drove out all the animals from the temple. We do use whip with animals, whips with animals. Yeah, yeah. I'm just – So I'm I'm just trying to be – according to the text. You might use a people tell, but you know. Okay, so you do support whipping animals. Yeah, and – Get we got and, it. And also, finally, I think, finally got And this finally, guy. I think uh, something that drives out an animal that, that creates a stampede actually doesn't, if you use a rip correctly, you don't actually whip the animals. Right. You, you crack right. the whip, right? So I think we, that's become an interesting myth that, well, Jesus beat people up at the temple or something. And I say, well, no, there could be a real question here, but about, ask the real question. What about Jesus telling the disciples to, to go out armed on their missions? Well, it's interesting because Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. As Gentiles, we come along and we want to impose a kind of Gentile literalism on it, but Jewish rabbis always use imagery and metaphor. So you ask the question, do you think Jesus was literally saying grab real swords or that the sword was the word of God, that the sword was, which is actually how he uses it, how the Apostle Paul picks up on it. It says we have to have the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. The book of Revelation says Jesus has the sword, which is the word of God coming out of his mouth. So when Jesus says, you know, use your swords, is it literal or is it figurative? Well, Peter takes it as literal in the garden during the arrest, grabs yeah, a sword, and yeah. Jesus rebukes him for it. So I think, and, and then we have for the first 200 years of the Christian faith, we have no record of any religious leader interpreting Jesus as a literal sword. It's a pacifistic movement for two centuries. So I, I think that that's a bit of a Gentile retrojection to say, hey, Jesus mentioned a sword. He must have been encouraging violence. Gentile retrojection. Gen- Pushing back into the text what we think it should say from our point of view. Great name for a punk band. But, but if you let a first century Jewish rabbi teach as he would, that's just a use of metaphor. But the, the later church that became violent had to look for passages like this and say, hey, wait a second, I think Jesus might have done this and maybe did that to justify their violence uh, uh, pushed onto what was essentially this beautiful enemy-loving peace movement from the beginning. So so individuals in your church are counseled to not, um, say, resist assault? Uh, we're called to li- love. Enemy love is always saying what is best for the other person, and so we are called to lay our lives down for a cause, but not to take a life for a cause. But if uh, somebody a rapist attacks a woman, she's not allowed to fight back. No, now see, you're making uh, the typical assumption that pa- being a pacifist means being passive, and it, it, that's that's no, a I'm misunderstanding. Being pacific, peaceful. Being being yeah, and a pacifier comes from the same root as to pacify, as an active to be an agent of peace. That's what we call a soother, a pacifier, and so, so to be peacemakers is to. Get intervene, but you intervene in a way that risks your own life rather than the other person's. Can they fight back? 
they can they can intervene in a way that it, that gets in the way. I can tell you a story of how I fought back. So you here, fought back? Yeah. So streets of Ottawa a few years ago, a number of years ago, there was a young woman who was being she was black and she was beat up on by a group of skinheads. Uh, they uh, I saw her run by and I saw them chase her. So then I ran after them, not knowing what I was going to find. They had her by the time I got down to the alley, she was on the floor cornered and they were around her with their steel pull, pull, uh, steel toed boots, army fatigues, just kicking the life out of her. I think literally I pushed through the crowd and I lay over top of her and said, kill me first. Those were the first words that came out of my mouth. I don't know why that did. And I remember my brain saying to my mouth, shut up. <laughs> yeah. So I said, kill me first. That, that happens can- to me every show, Bruxy. Right. <laughs> that confused them. And they said, what are you talking about? You're white. Get out of the way. We just And they said a lot of really crass things. And I said, this just started coming out of my mouth. It was instinctive. I said, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I'm not going to fight you, but I'm also not going to be passive. So kill me first. It confused them. They had a little powwow amongst themselves. I said, I don't know. Should we kill the white? What do I do? And then they walked away. They eventually walked away. Could have ended differently, yeah. but at least I did something. I wasn't I know, going to be but passive. There's, there's a, women that have been sexually assaulted, and there's not a you know a guy there waiting to dive on them. So are you, I'm just asking you straight up. Can the woman fight back? Can the woman fight back against a rapist? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I think, though, that the yes, yes. But the greatest way, the definition of fighting back, I mean, even uh, sexual assault counselors will say one of the best ways of of fighting back is to stick your finger down your own mouth or to cause some form of yeah, repulsion. Because you're creating a fictitious scenario where the woman is somehow stronger than the rapist who, as I fight sometimes back— Sometimes they have I, mace. Sometimes they have knives. Sometimes oh, they okay. have sharp nails. Sometimes yeah, if you they got, have self-defense courses. And they if you've got pun- mace or a, a taser or a well, no, whistle they punch or a guy's a, throat out. I mean, it's possible. And even if it's even if they're not ultimately in a position to, to overpower physically their, assault, you know, their assailant, yeah. uh, they're going to kick up a fuss and maybe call attention to themselves yes so my question is is like if you if you countenance that why would you not countenance a community or a nation defending itself against attackers i'm yeah there's no no one has ever accused a nation of doing wrong by defending itself that's what nations do okay so you're a pacifist who believes then that a nation could legitimately have an army I, is there such a thing as a nation without an army in a world? Well, I know, ours? but you just told us that you wouldn't have a military man in a you're, leadership position. You're confusing. No, no. The, the, we're saying that a follower of Christ is not going to take that position, but we in no way think that there's such a thing as a Christian nation that we just assume everyone Wait in our country second. has to be Christian. Wait a second. So, yeah. like, only non Christians can be in the military? Like, a, Yeah. From our point of view, as a pacifist, yes. So you're in political science, we call that the free riding problem. No, no, because we will pay our taxes and we will find any non. Wait, did you see uh, Hacksaw Ridge? We will find any nonviolent way that we can lay our life down for a cause rather than take a life. We will not just be pacifists at doing a free ride. It's called paying your taxes, and it's also being willing to die for the same cause that other people are being willing to kill for. There's no running away and taking a free ride. All right, let me press pause there. First of all. I had no idea that my show would be able to offer this kind of fantastic content. Thank you. (laughs) This is really fascinating for me as a creepy outsider to listen to Mm. because I value both of you guys because of your journeys and the things that have come out of your yap over the years that I've known you. And for you two to meet and talk, you you did over the phone one time on the show uh, years ago, but for you to be in the same room at the same time and and talk things through, this is really, really... um, a ground level conversation stuff. This is rubber, rubber, rubber hits the road. That's yeah. it. Yeah, the rubber road, road thing. Uh, yeah. 
Um, Tim's been drinking over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> so I, I want to segue a little bit into, not a little bit, totally into uh, Bruxy's new book, forwarded by Shane, uh, used to have long hair, Claiborne. The book is called Reunion, the good news of Jesus for seekers, saints, and sinners. Bruxy, you're, you're the kind of guy, when I've talked to you over the years, it's so irritating, but it's kind of nice. Every stinking time you get to talk or write about something, it always comes back to Jesus. It's 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 irritating. It's a mantra. But uh, I think your first book, uh, which was called The End of Religion, mm-hmm. uh, no, hold on, there's actually a question here. Which book is more Jesus-y, this one or The End of Religion? <laughs> Jesus is an exhaustive topic. They are both completely Jesus-y, right. taking two different approaches. And the so End the of approach, Religion yep. was about one specific aspect of the interesting life of Christ, which is his repudiation of religion, of religion as day, of his replacing religion with himself, which is one chapter in this book. Um, so the end of religion zooms in on that mm-hmm. one aspect of the gospel. This zooms out to include the other things that Jesus taught and stood for, but includes that as well. Yeah, hold on, uh, explain that more. Zooms out and... Zooms out, includes different aspects of the gospel. Forgiveness for sin, just God's love, uh, the, what it means to be a part of the kingdom of Christ, which is a massive uh, theme in the teaching of Jesus. Have you taken heat for this book? Uh, have I taken heat for this book? No, not yet. Because you took heat for the other book. Yeah, I'm sure it's time will come. It just came out a month ago. Give it, give it time. Give it time. Give it yeah. time to yeah. We want a little heat. I guess I, I'm not sure how to bring this up, and I'm not sure how you've been coached to deal with this. But you, there was a pastor from another church that gave you a little bit of uh, time on the on the old internet. If you go on the Google, uh, you can find uh, <laughs> this guy saying that uh, calling you bad names, and, sure. and uh, it starts with an H, I think. Oh, uh, heretic. Yeah, that's it. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, get in line. Um, um, but what are you? Why are you being described as a heretic, Bruxy? Because you're you're the most Jesusy guy I know. To the point where it's irritating. To the point where you got the hair and the sandals and the beard. The beard. Yeah. Uh, I I can't speak for somebody else. I I don't want to get into a he said she said uh, nope, about no, someone else. I will going. stay on point as far as Jesus is concerned. I think he is the centerpiece of the message of Scripture. I think whenever the church has departed from the centrality of Jesus, the church, which should be the most beautiful community on the planet, has become the most ugly community on the planet. As it has said, well, we follow the Bible in general, rather Jesus in particular. It has given them license to draw from whatever part of the Bible they want to and say we're following the Bible, which means the Old Testament wars, the aggression to say, well, it's in the Bible, so that's what God's word is to us, so we'll do it. And the church has used war, torture, um, and all kinds of violence in order to advance its earthly kingdom. And I think Jesus stands in opposition to that, even if it's called Christian, it is anti-Christ, and that we need a new movement of Christ followers to stand up and say, wait a second, let's get back to the original teaching example of Jesus and follow him. That's The church needs the gospel as much as any non-Christian needs the gospel. Okay, but the issue in the Jesus scene that I take the most, uh, th- that I get upset with the most, mm-hmm. is when people uh, pronounce eternal destinations on others. Mm-hmm. For example, Brexy, because you teach this in your church, you're mm-hmm. not a real Christian. Yeah. I call BS on that time and time and time and time and time again. It's mm-hmm. nauseating, even more yeah. nauseating than you being super Jesus guy. <laughs> um, it's, it's being judged by Christians for being a super Jesus guy. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, irritating. Who yeah. does that? So this pronouncement of someone's eternal destination based on the fact that your doctrine is different than theirs, mm-hmm. how do you stop such a thing? I don't know if you can. I, I spent 
a number of years earlier in my pastoral life thinking, if we just argue this to the ground, eventually we'll all agree. Right. And I How'd thought, that work for you? Yeah. No. So I just realized that uh, people get to their conclusions based on more than just sensible talking through their best understanding of Scripture and partnering that with logic. And we're, there's a lot of emotion and history that they're stewarding and, and tradition that they, they would feel uncomfortable if they had to let go of that goes on behind how our brains function and interpret Scripture. So I realized that there's, there's forces that are beyond anything that my simple argument is going to be able to change. So I tend to take my cues from Jesus who, when he would teach, he would have this line. He'd say, this is for him who has ears to hear. I love that line because what Jesus is saying is there's a bunch of you who don't even really have your ears open to hear this stuff. I'm not going to knock my head against a wall trying to convert you. I'm just talking to those who have their ears open. This is for him who has ears to hear, which really frees me up to say I don't have to try and get everyone to agree with me. I'm just going to move along and look for the person whose ears are open. Again, let me go back to this. Mm -hmm. The irritating thing for me in this whole thing that you can find online and people talking about this stuff is when Buddy from the other church says – Bruxy is not a real Christian, um, and he is teaching things that are dragging people into hell with him kind of verbiage. That's yeah. the kind of words he used. Because his doctrinal belief system is different than what we teach in our church. Mm-hmm. That is just ludicrous. It, it seems so to me. When you have Jesus at the center, you would think the two people who have Jesus at the center would then be able to talk about the circumference. Yes. And say, well, we disagree about this. We disagree about we have, But that would all be the kinds of things that brothers and sisters would do together around the dinner table as part of the same family yeah. as opposed to trying to decide who gets kicked out of the family. Well, let me tell you, I know a little bit about uh, family members deciding that they don't want to have anything to do with you anymore just because of <laughs> things you have said or believe. Um, Interesting. Yes. In, in um, uh, Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And he, he says that the wheat is growing up and the weeds are growing up with it. And uh, the disciples or the servants come and say, well, let us do some weeding. We'll pull out all the weeds. And the master says to the servants, do not do it because you're not good at it. And you won't be able to recognize which is which. And you'll end up pulling up wheat and weeds together. He says, you wait until the end of time when God and his holy angels come and he will decide. So Jesus has specifically mm. told us that part of following Jesus is not trying to call someone a wheat or a weed, but just inviting people to follow Jesus. In your book, do you discuss the uh, exclusivity of the claims of Christ? In other words, that Larry, famous Larry King question that he liked to ask, uh, ask uh, Dr. Billy Graham all the time. Yeah. If I don't believe in Jesus, am I going to go to hell? Do you deal with the exclusivity of Christ in this book? Yes, absolutely. I think that there is something completely unique and unparalleled in the person of Jesus. Um, and to me, that's good news because I think for a Christian, my best understanding is that Jesus is at the center. He shows us God in a way no other prophet or guru or teacher ever will. And that is good news because he shows us a God who is more merciful and accepting and irreligious, I would say, than any any other depiction of God. What's the verse? What are the two, three verses that I just came across these the other day, and I feel very ignorant about admitting this, but I, yet I can't even remember what the verses are right now, that kind of says, hey, I'm going to check out, the, there's other flocks over here, too, that are kind of mine as well. You know that verse? Uh, Jesus says that in John 10. There are other sheep and other flock. And yeah, need thank to you. Go, yeah? Isn't that the whole uh, you can believe other stuff passage? Well, I, I, well, he doesn't go as far as to say that. But here's, what, here's something I, I find even more interesting along the same line. Matthew chapter 25, he tells a parable of the sheep and the goats. And the sheep and the goats are two people that are judged on judgment day based on how they live their lives in loving the least fortunate around them. And it appears, if you read the passage, that none of them are professing Christians 
They are two groups of people who are judged based on how they unwittingly serve Jesus in their life. So Jesus is the only way to be saved. Jesus is the centerpiece. He's the judge on Judgment Day, but he is gracious to those people who served him even though they didn't know it. Because both the sheep and the goats say, when did we serve you? It's not like the sheep are people who have ever heard the parable of the sheep and the goats. They're not Christians. They're not reading the Bible. So these are two groups of people that Jesus says, I'm the one who will save you, but I'm, you're serving me by just loving the least fortunate around you. I take that as personal worship of me. What's the F word? Faith. That was boring. <laughs> you asked. Ah. <laughs> well, it's a chapter in your book, and yeah. I, I haven't gotten to that chapter. The F word. Yeah, which is amazing because this idea that we are simply called to you see, some people think faith is like, m- like making your mind uh, embrace in some something kind of invisible. Fairy t- yes, faith is just trusting in a person. It's the same word pisteo or pistis in Greek means just to have trust in a person. So Jesus t- says, "I'm doing everything religion has tried to do but failed to do throughout all of history." God, I'm God coming and doing it for you. Offer this amazing gift of grace. Again, nothing like this in any other world religion. I'll offer this for you. I'm just asking that you trust that it's true. Just trust that it's true. Then you have this freedom of saying. I don't have to do these things anymore. I'm free just by trusting that I don't have to. I trust the message. What do you say to people who are, um, they can't even use the G word. They're so irreligious. They're so, not just irreligious, they're angsty about organized religion. You know, they, they mm. don't even want to just use the the, oh, the, the words. God? Yeah. I, I, are, sure. First of all, I want to talk to them and find out what their point of pain is. Some people have gotten to that point because there's been real spiritual abuse, religious abuse. I get that. Uh, it's like Jesus came with the message, religion is over. It's time to shut the whole thing down. And within a few hundred years, his followers said, that's Let's a great a message. We'll start a religion out of it. Yeah, and we'll call it the Christian religion. And we'll, and they build this thing that actually counteracts and manipulates so much of the teaching of Jesus. And people, I think when someone says, e, I want nothing to do with that, that could be a sign of actually God at work in them, pulling them back to the original teachings of Jesus. So I want to get to know why they got where they got and say there could be evidence here of you being closer to Jesus than you even realize. In the studio with Bruxy Cavey and Tal Backman, and of course right now we're talking about Bruxy's latest book, Reunion, The Good News of Jesus for Seekers, Saints, and Sinners. Bruxy Cavey with a little forward by Shane Claiborne. What happened to his hair? Do you know why he cut off his hair? Because you haven't cut off your hair. Are you going to cut not. off your hair? Shane cut off his hair. Why don't you cut off your Eventually hair? Eventually, I'll just shave and go bald. Ooh, that's awkward. Yeah, baby. Yeah. We could put our heads together and moon somebody. <laughs> um, that was a Tony Campolo line, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. <sighs> Beautiful. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm recovering. Okay. Um, Aren't we all? Chapter 7, God's graphic love. Mm-hmm. Here's how I describe God's graphic love. Okay. When you pick your nose... And you get a big juicy booger on there. Yeah. And you go to flick it. And it doesn't. It goes from one finger to the next, to the next, to the next. You can't get it's sticky, you can't get rid of it. God's love is like snot. That's it, that's my uh, chapter. If I was to write a chapter called God's graphic love. The tears are welling up uh, all gonna, across. I'm gonna write a letter to the station and complain about that. No, John uh, uh, Johnny Fever said booger. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Remember? WKRP? Oh, yeah, right. Booger. <laughs> he was finally allowed to say it on air. He got in trouble before. Why? What's so graphic about God's love? And why, why is this? To me, this is a hook chapter. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fundamental. It reframes how we actually look at the crucifixion, which means any painting or any crucifix or any empty cross, the centerpiece of the Christian religion, as 
God dying for us, and he is what? Praying for his enemies while he is dying. He is praying for forgiveness as he's dying. And then he rises from the dead, not with a, okay, you had your chance, now it's payback. And he mows them down. I'm he, sorry, what was that sound? That was a machine gun, just okay. so you know. He's a pacifist, so he doesn't yeah. know what yeah. that sounds like. don't know what that Yeah, I don't know what it is. Do, 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 pew, 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 pew. Uh, <laughs> So then he rises from the dead, and he commissions his disciples to the same message of forgiveness, just keep spreading forgiveness. So there is this – so when we look at how graphic it is, we're saying this is what humanity does when it's confronted with perfect love. It freaks us out. It threatens our religious systems. That's – the violence there is an example of what we do to God, but God's forgiveness no matter what. It says that no matter what I've done, God is coming after me with a desire for reconciliation, not for judgment. I mean, that's that's a beautiful. That's how the gospel gets preached in the Book of Acts. By the way, every time you killed Christ, but God raised him from the dead, is the pattern of Peter, Peter's preaching over and over again throughout the Book of Acts. Hmm. We humans rejected perfect perfect love. We couldn't take it. Freaked us out. He rose from the dead to just keep offering it. Uh, one of the prophecies of Jesus is that he would be Emmanuel, which means God with us, which doesn't just mean God became human. It means God's like with us, with us. He's on our side. He he is stuck to us like snot on Thank a finger. Thank you. Yes, Thanks. yes. I'll be using that from now on. That he will just not relent on wanting to love us. He will just not relent. <laughs> ha! Oh! I didn't even... Yes, that's He's good. here all week. Yeah. It, it, the, what Bruxy is talking about, Tal? Do you want to become a Christian again? Do you want to believe in God well, again? Do, um, you want to, do you want to? Do you want to sign up? Does, does stuff he says? We have like, an altar call, right? Now. We could just. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We got enough water around here. We could dunk uh, you. Baptism. What do you uh, think about? What do you think about this guy? Seriously, right now, what do you think about him? Oh, I think he's done really well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like, not like I'm in a position of, you know, it's like I'm scoring an Olympic skating competition or something, and I'm in a 6.0 or something. No, no, it's um, you know, thought-provoking. Um, but is there is there anything that you miss? Do you miss Jesus? Um, it, it, okay, well, I'll, I'll see if we can give a concise answer to that. I mean, the, the thing with Mormonism is, they, you know, I don't know how else to say it, but but Jesus is kind of obscured in Mormonism. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, you know there are all these other sorts of things floating around, and so you don't have that. You know, maybe sadly for Mormons, um, you really just don't have that emphasis on the life and mission of Jesus Christ. Um, I mean, you do to an extent, but it's just clouded. So when you were a Mormon, you and Jesus weren't tight. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it would depend on the individual Mormon because everybody kind you. of. You, I don't is, care about yeah. individual. I mean, um, you. No, it was a, a, well. Yeah, I guess I did, but it was. It's kind of more my my understanding of what this one true gospel was was it was more about. Um, 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 the, the kind of code of ethics, the code of behavior, the truth, the doctrines, the whole smorgasbord that that uh, you know Christ's gospel was lost in the, in the fog of apostasy and has now been restored in its pristine fullness and brilliance through you know this prophet Joseph Smith. Yeah. I mean, so you got a whole lot of stuff going on. So what you really don't hear from a typical Mormon is if they would just were to speak about their faith is is about a relationship with Jesus Christ mm-hmm. a connection with um you know deity through through the image of Jesus Christ i mean all of those kinds of things that's my portal to transcendence i mean you just don't really have that so mm-hmm. i mean getting back to your original question sure there's like a big part of me that that you know that feels that pull appreciates that pull and in those intuitions i mean i've got like a zillion songs about this. I mean, I'm writing songs as a Christian because I love the old-time Christian, you know, songs 
that contemporary Christians have forgotten about. They, if they, if they ever even knew about them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so sure. I mean, and you know, and even if you sort of like um, talk about or you you kind of interpret those spiritual intuitions through the lens of Christianity, I mean, you know, I think that there's something valuable there. I wish Christians would kind of get, you know, back on the. I, I don't want to take the over your show. Well, I mean, when I was a little kid, when I was a little kid, I went to a Christian school, private Christian school. Okay, it was kind of an old time Dutch Calvinist, Dutch Christian Reformed kind of thing. And <laughs> uh, well, I I got to tell you, I mean, I appreciated that there was there was quite a bit of evidence, uh, quite a bit of emphasis in that setting on what it means to act in a in a in a Christian fashion. What does a Christian gentleman do? What does it look like? How do you how do you translate your faith, your relationship with Jesus Christ, into every single you know everyday behavior? And um, and you know there would have been theological differences between those guys and you. I mean, if you were stupid, they would hit you with a stick, right? You know, um, you know the boys anyway. Um, <laughs> but you know, but at least you, but at least they're not doing the normal contemporary Christian thing, which is like I have a get out of jail free card forever. I can do anything. Guy, I fell off the wagon again, but hell, I you know I I prayed for forgiveness and I'm right back in there. You know, and so what, you get these. That well, you have these, so these congregations. Well, you know, I'm, I'm riffing here. This is like a one man improv. I mean, you get, so you get these congregations where they're full of these rogues and scoundrels who might actually be sincere in their faith of Jesus Christ, but there is just no translation into like their actual behavior. And I wish that some of these Christian congregations would take that more seriously, mm. kick these bums out of their congregation, reassert themselves, um, because the West needs that, right? I don't, be- I can't make myself believe some of those real world, real world claims. But I would like other people to believe. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of, a, yeah. speaking okay. of yeah. free riding, right, well, let's wrap this up. I want Bruxy to to uh, if if Tal read this book, yeah. I'm going to give this to him, he, and we're going to we're going to keep him accountable, and we're going to find out if he's read it later. Okay, because apparently we, we, there might be a chance of of Daddy coming on the show next week. Uh, is that, should I verbalize that or no? Yeah, sure. I'll, you know, I'll ask him again. Okay. okay, all right. I don't know what that had to do with you reading this book, but I just I just thought of it now. Um, if you were to give if you were to give him this book, you go, Tal. If you read this book, here's one thing I would love for you to get out of this book. What would it be? Yeah, let me say two things. Oh, first, okay, go. Uh, first of all, because I I resonate with what you said, and one of the things that my atheist friends and I agree on is we say we all want Christians to be more Christ-like. We all want Christians to take Jesus more seriously. So my friends also say I hope Christians read this book as much as non-Christians uh, consider Jesus, and mm. so that there is this. That's part of this movement is both a movement of saying, well, we want people who have nothing. We're playing spiritual pin the tail on the donkey. They're trying to figure out where to put their faith. I think there's no higher centerpiece than Jesus that we can find anywhere in human history or in religious history. Having said that, uh, there's also people who are already people of faith that we're all cheering for who claim to be followers of Jesus, who do not apply his teachings, who do not live out, who see it just as a get-out-of-jail-free card. That's been a problem since the very first century. That's why the book of 1 Corinthians was written to a group of Christians who thought, I can live however I want just because I get to go to heaven when I die. What shall we sin so that grace Grace abound? Yeah, right. God forbid. Whoa, easy there, scripture quoters. Yeah, right. So so from the beginning, grace has always been that doctrine that has been misunderstood and abused and has to be challenged. But we need to see Jesus as not only a movement that gets me to heaven, but as a reality that gets heaven into me that says what was his great prayer the the lord's prayer thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven so that 
we want the way of heaven to happen here, not just live however I want so I can go to heaven when I die. And that's a growing movement. There is a growing movement of like repentant Christians who are saying, we actually haven't taken the Jesus bit seriously in the center of our faith. I was thinking when um, Drew asked you if you miss Jesus, I don't want to be insulting to your tradition, but uh, based it's on your... It's not... Yeah. yeah based, okay. <laughs> you, you feel free. Okay. Well, <laughs> based that's a part on, of my life that is completely behind Okay. Because so. I thought when he asked that, I thought based on your response, I would say it's hard to miss what has always been nebulous in the first place that hasn't been a clear connection. And I'm just drawing that from what you said. Yeah, sure. So I would love not to reintroduce you to something of the past, but to have you consider of even more ancient past of the actual Jesus of the Bible, I think is, is radical enough for all of our needs. The message of Jesus changed the world until the world changed the message is a fragmented version of the good news masquerading as the full forceful gospel of Jesus. Join best-selling author Bruxy Cavey in a dynamic investigation of the most earth-shattering, piety-smashing, life-changing news ever. That's my mother wrote that. Written on the back of Bruxy's book, <laughs> Reunion. Um, Bruxy, thank you. Yeah, you thanks. just gave us a chunk of time. You endured Tal, and more importantly. Uh, you endured me. <laughs> Thank uh, you for the privilege. I always appreciate when you come into the studio, man. I, don't, I like it more when you come into the studio because we get the cuddle. Uh, short break, and when we come back, Robert Thurman. He is the president of Tibet House in the United States. He is professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist Studies at Columbia University. Uh, he is a friend of the Dalai Lama. He and Richard Gere started Tibet House in New York City a long time ago. He is the father of Uma Thurman from Kill Bill. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 